Well, our passage today, we read all the way through 44, but I want to tell you up front, I'm really going to, I'm really going to spend most of our time in verses 17 through 37, and then we're going to finish out this chapter next week. And, uh, but before we do, I, I feel like today has the potential to be uh, very significant for us. And I want to ask the Lord to be here with us um, in a special way. And so if you would, bow with me and let me pray. God, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, show up here now, take your word, illuminate it to the hearts of your people, that they may see you more fully that they may know you more completely, that they may find hope in their time of trouble. God, use me, uh, this sinner. Forgive me of my sins. May your word go forth powerfully. In Christ's name, amen. Suppose you are a police officer. And you're trained and you're skilled in how to handle confrontation with bad people. And while walking down the street near your home, you hear a woman in the distance screaming from around the corner. As you come around the corner, you see them. There are two men holding her, one pulling at her shirt while the other holds a knife to her throat. You've been trained to handle this very thing. You put your hand on your holstered gun in case you need to pull it at any moment. And you ease closer to the victim and her two attackers. Then you slide your gun slowly from the holster and you take a couple of steps closer. And then you back away and you holster your gun and you move out of the alley and you walk back down the street. What? Why? Why would you not help this woman? You've been trained, you're capable, you're competent. Maybe maybe it's fear. Maybe you're just not a very good person. Maybe it's high blood pressure. Who knows? This had to be the way it felt to Martha and Mary with Jesus in this situation in John 11. Look at their words. Both of them said, and it's interesting to note, the exact same words to Jesus. So look at John 11:21 first. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in case you miss it, in John eleven thirty two, 32, look what Mary said. Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same words used by both sisters. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is God like the highly trained cop who could surely handle the two attackers, but he holsters his gun and he walks away? Sometimes it feels that way. I think both of these sisters loved Jesus and they trusted him. That makes their words more powerful to me. There is an accusation, though, in their words, a charge or a claim, an indictment or blame, a criticism or a complaint. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. It's not just Martha and Mary who feel this sting, but it's all of us. When the circumstances apply enough pressure and enough suffering, those kinds of questions come up in our hearts. Now, lest we get too far down that path, let me remind you the main point, and I think it's very important as a Bible teacher to come back to the main point. The main point of this section of Scripture is to reveal God's glory by revealing his love and power. Jesus clearly loved these sisters and their brother, and he shows his love and power in the resurrection of Lazarus to point to a greater power is to raise himself and his people from the dead. The problem in the story is the way the story unfolds. When the story unfolds in time and space, like our stories unfold in time and space, because of human sin, often the nature of God's character is called into question. The scenario plays, it, plays itself out thousands of times a day all around the world. And in our story today, it doesn't help that Jesus tells the disciples from last week, you may remember, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad. That isn't helping the, the, the problem, is it? Why is Jesus glad? Because there's way, way, way more at stake in this world than one person's life or one person's death. God planned this death to show his glory, to show his goodness, to show his love, to show his power, and to show his ability to take a bad situation and turn it into something gloriously good. You didn't hear me wrong. I said God planned his death. And here's it one step further. God has planned my death. And let me take it one step past that. 
God has planned your death. And I'm glad. Because the alternative is, there's no plan. The alternative is, it's just random. I do not believe the Scriptures teach that. From Lazarus' death, many would believe and be strengthened through this hard situation. Many would pass from eternal death and darkness to eternal life and light. God is at work here in this world in the details of life. Though he may feel distant or even that he doesn't really exist, or maybe even worse, he exists but he really just doesn't care. Does he holster the gun and walk away? Last week I said, loving, true love, is doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God as the most supreme joy. And in this case, love allows death because it reveals Christ in the case of Lazarus. We must remember that God is acting in the most loving way possible when he orchestrates circumstances to allow us to see him and see his glory. And that is why Lazarus' death was planned. That is why the father allowed the most horrible murder in history to happen. And I'm not talking about Lazarus. The most horrible murder in history is when you take a very innocent person and you kill them. Jesus was the most innocent person in the history of mankind, and he was murdered on the cross. Tragic. Other examples of questioning God in Scripture, lest you think this is just Martha and Mary, look with me, if you would, at Mark in your Bibles, Mark 4.38. This is the story of the disciples and they're crossing over the sea and Jesus has gone to sleep. And in Mark 4.38, this is what happens. It says, in Mark 4.38 it says, But when he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, they, they being the disciples, they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You hear the accusation? Do you not care that we are perishing? Another commentator has said it this way. Teacher, are we to drown for all you care? They're rebuking God. The disciples here are rebuking God. In other places in the scripture, we find these feelings that God has forsaken his people. In Psalms 10, 1, listen to what it says here. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself 
in times of my trouble. And then in Psalm 44, 23 and 24, it says, Awake! The psalmist is telling God, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? These are real cries from the heart of the psalmist. And I am glad. You know why I'm glad? Because I cry out like this too. This is called lamenting. There's a biblical word for it. It doesn't necessarily mean like with Martha and Mary that they're calling God bad and evil, but they're expressing true, authentic emotion. It's lamenting. It's what the psalmists do. I think that we can do it. We don't have to put on a happy face and act like everything's okay when we just lost someone that we dearly love. No, that's a time to grieve. But you don't grieve without hope. And you don't grieve without joy. Now, this one gets a little bit trickier. But one more example. Psalms 22.1 is the exact same quote that Jesus said on the cross when he died. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That whole psalm is about Jesus. But Jesus cries that out. And so when I, when I as, a study, as I'm studying the Bible, I ask the question, Did Christ not know the answer? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the whole reason he came. Yeah, he knew the answer. He knew he was to pay for the sins of his people. He knew that answer. But the anguish and the pain of what he was going through brought this to the surface in his emotions. When we suffer as Christians, and we do, we do not know why, and therefore it evokes questions. Or can can we know why, ultimately? Can we know why we are suffering, ultimately? I think we can. I want you to look with me, and this is important. This is where I think this thing can turn for you, and you can understand suffering maybe for the rest of your life. Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24. This is what it says. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I hope you get this. Let's look at it a little little closer. Paul says to the Colossians, I'm rejoicing in my suffering. Why? Because it just feels good. I love suffering. It's great. No. No. He's saying, I'm rejoicing in my suffering for you. 
for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, when Christ was on the cross and he dies for the sins of his people, did he leave something lacking? We know that Jesus said, it is finished. So he didn't leave anything lacking when it came to saving his people. Nothing was lacking. But yet, here in our verse, it says, I am filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. For what? For the sake of his body, that is, the church. I am completing, Paul says, I am completing the suffering of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let me say it this way, and I hope you get this in summary. What's missing in the afflictions of Jesus himself is the in-person, real-time connection with the people all over the nation and in the future generations who did not see and experience firsthand the sufferings of Christ. And so, the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known among the nations. So what is God's plan? You are little Christ. And what is going to happen is he is going to allow you to suffer. And in your suffering, you are to be holy. And in your suffering, you are to hope. And in your suffering, you are to represent and fill up the afflictions of Christ because when others see your suffering, they say, what is the reason for their hope? And the reason is, like Christ on the cross, we don't suffer in vain. And here's what I want to say. Every little pain, every little suffering. Do you have someone that you're caring for that is dying and they're in a home and you're having to give yourself over and over and over and over? Or are you yourself just aging and your body feels like it's falling apart and it seems senseless it seems hopeless or worse we've lost people that we love so so deeply and we can't see for the life of us how this could be connected it is there is nothing you will suffer as a Christian as one of his people that is pointless. It all counts. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purposes. All of it. All of it. Something happened to you when you were a child. Something happened to me when I was a child. I've told Maybe my wife. And I laid in bed one night when I really realized what had happened. 
and I was an adult. And I said, God, where were you when that happened? Where were you? You could have stopped that. Even that has a purpose. I don't know what it is, but it is filling up what is lacking in Christ. Do you see the glory of this great truth? We can know, we can know that our suffering matters. All of it. All of it. As his children, it all counts. I think about some of you that are aging, and I know sometimes you sit alone in your house or wherever you are, and you wonder, maybe, why does it have to be like this? I'm alone, and I'm old, maybe I'm widowed, and I want to say to you, it all counts. It all counts. Don't ask me how, but the Word of God says You are not suffering in vain. You're filling up the afflictions of Christ. It all counts. Do it with hope. Do it with joy. Do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our pain is not wasted. Our tears are not unseen. Our afflictions are extended to others that they may see the hope of Christ and the glory of Christ in it. If you look at John 11, 21 through 25, <clears throat> Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, Now, because of the suffering, he's revealing more of himself. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. And then she expresses her hope and faith in him. She says in John 11, 27, yes, Lord, listen to what she says. Other people in the Bible aren't getting this. She's getting it, and she's getting it through the suffering. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. That's 1127. And then she says, the Son of God, as to put an exclamation point on it, who is coming into the world. She sees it. She sees the Messiah. What nobody else can seem to see, she sees it. And I believe A good reason why is suffering. She sees it. Martha gives her testimony to Jesus being the Messiah. She sees him for who he is. But then notice, just after she sees him in John 11, 37, look look what happens there. They don't see him. But some of them said in John 11, 37, could not the he who opened the eyes of the blind man, previous chapter, also have kept this man from dying? You hear the sarcasm in that? Big man over here, he heals the blind guy, but he can't keep this guy from dying? 
I don't believe in that guy. He's a loser. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this. The natural person, that's the person that hasn't been born again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These people could not understand the things of God. Why? Because they weren't born again. And we know only God, only the Holy Spirit, as it says in John 3, can cause life. So, how do we question God? This is how they question God. How do we question God? We question his character when suffering and pain comes. When we are, when we are suffering, suffering, we usually see the bad stuff, and I think that's the way God designed it, the dross coming to the top. We see the bad stuff coming to the top. And this is kind of what it sounds like in our hearts and in our minds. This is how the record plays. I don't deserve this. Why has God allowed this pain? I have tried to follow him, and I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Why does he allow this into my life? That's kind of what it sounds like. <clears throat> when I was in my early 20s, the thing I wanted more than anything was to be married and have a family. You see, my family was marred by divorce and broken relationships. I longed to experience an intact family where there was health and wholeness. I committed, I don't know if y'all know this, but I committed to go on a missionary team to Mexico City to reach college students with the gospel, and it was a long-term team. We used to tease when people would say, how long are you going to be there? And I'd say, till my teeth fall out. In other words, I'm not coming back. The problem was, I was the only one on the team who was single. Everybody else was married. And my greatest desire was to be married and have a family. Well, I was also dating somebody, so I had this hope. But that hope and that dream one evening ended in Athens, Georgia, when she ended the relationship. Her mother wanted her to marry a doctor and not a missionary kid from Woodstock. And indeed, she broke out with me and promptly married a doctor. I felt like I was giving up my whole life for the gospel. Why couldn't God give me this one thing? To make matters worse, my blue-collar upbringing had played a part in the breakup and, the Lord, and I said to the Lord, I didn't write my story. You wrote my story. And you're allowing all of these things to happen and crush me. 
and indeed I was crushed. I couldn't understand his saying no to my simple little one wish. I began to question his goodness like I had never questioned it. Is he really good? Is he really even there? Is he in control? Or am I just down here working this out on my own? And so one night, I got on my knees in Birmingham, Alabama, beside my bed, and I was reading through Job because I felt like Job. And I was beginning to cry, and I, it was getting late, and I had to be at work at 7.30 in the morning. So I said, Lord, I'm going to stop and go to bed, and whatever time you wake me up, I'm going to get up and start this wrestling match with you again over how unfair you're being. And so at five till five, I woke up wide awake and I said, Lord, that can't be you. I'm going to try to go back to sleep. But I couldn't. And I got up and I took a shower and I got in my car and I drove over to a restaurant called the Copper Kettle. And I got a booth and a cup of coffee and I began to read. <clears throat> and when I got to Job 38, 1 through 7, you can turn there if you like. I think it might help. This is what I read. Sitting in the copper kettle, broken. This is what God says. Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, and I was in a whirlwind. Listen to these words. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you. This is God talking to Job. I'll question you, and you make it known to me, big boy. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You hear the sarcasm in God? <laughs> or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And I kept reading. Three chapters later, I get to chapter 40, verse 8. And this is when it happened. It says, God's saying to Job, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? There was a waterworks that morning as I sat in the booth by myself. I put my head down and I wept. I surrendered to God. I surrendered. You're the God of the universe. My back visibly moving up and down as I sobbed like a baby, snot running down my nose. I was a mess. But God had never spoken more clearly. The message that God gave me that morning was this right here. Clint, I am God. I love you, but you have to trust me.
I wept. I rejoiced. I had finished my wrestling with God. I knew he had spoken. And I said, God, I do. I trust you. Whatever happens going forward, if I stay single, if I die tomorrow, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. It was probably only two months later, I got a call from an old friend, and her name was Peggy. And she said, I'm going back to our college for a dance, and I just wondered if you'd want to go with me. Now, 25 years later and three children, I get it. We don't always get answers like that. Sometimes we probably go to our grave without the answer. But I'm here to say it all counts. Whether you understand it or not. But you see, I want to get right back at this because there's one more thing that is so valuable to hear. Why do we do this with God? We think we deserve or we know better than his plan. But you know what the Bible says about this? And there's no candy coating way to say this to you. The Bible says you don't deserve better. The Bible says there are no good people. The Bible says that we're all born with a sin nature. The Bible says that God is infinitely holy. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's good. Yes, he's benevolent. But he's holy. And holiness demands judgment on our sin. And I think there are three cataracts that form on our eyes, our spiritual eyes. It is our view of God, our view of man, and our view of sin. Those three things must grow and you must see better or the cataracts will close over your eyes and you will be blind spiritually. If you do not understand the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man and our humanity, you'll question God all the time. When it gets hard, you'll question him. First Corinthians 3.12, I'm closing. It says this, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In this life, it's like looking at our stained glass windows from the other side with the plexiglass that you can't see through. They, they're beautiful right here. On the other side, you can't hardly see them. It's the way it is in this life with God. Our view of God, our view of ourselves, and our view of sin cloud the true beauty of who He is. So in conclusion, y'all have probably heard me. I like C.S. Lewis. I like the Chronicles of Narnia. I like the end of one of his books, and this is how it closes. Basically, Susan is in the story, and she's talking to this beaver who can actually talk, so it's like a human. 
And they're talking about Christ. And Christ in the story is Aslan the lion. And this is what she says. Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. I tell you, the sovereign God who holds your days in his hand is not safe. He's anything but. He's the king, I tell you, but he's good. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We can't see it like we should, but you are good. Help us to see you as you truly are and worship you and follow you all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name.